Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. This audio edition is created in conjunction with partners as part of our Market Voice series. Well, this conversation might get a little feisty. Southern Cross Osterio Chief Sales Officer Brian Gallagher has some contrarian views on the big push from agency groups to have media owners meet ESG and carbon neutral benchmarks as part of their annual ad deal negotiations. He also argues media buyers might be a little lost in the haze of numbers when audio platforms like Spotify bundle overall podcast audience numbers, which include SCA shows that Spotify can't commercialise. Brian says there's widespread misconception that they can. On the happier flip side, Brian and his colleague John O'Mandel, SCA's head of ad product, are quite chipper on the continuing surge of digital audio listing. At a market level, 9.4 million people are tuning in every week into the digital channel. Now that's the same number as broadcaster BVOD audiences. Now, why is that important? Because after OMG's Chief Investment Officer Christian Kroon forecast a few weeks back in MI3 that circa 300 million would exit the linear TV market this year and move to other mediums like audio, out of home and cinema, SCA has some pretty interesting figures on how digital audio can boost the audience reach numbers of TV and drive people to e-com sites, brand websites and app downloads amongst a whole bunch of other things. So let's hear these gents out, shall we? Uh, welcome to you both. Looking forward to this one, Brian. Um, let's start with this hot topic of net zero and carbon neutral media schedules. You're not entirely convinced about what's happening in the market at the moment. Um, please explain, as someone famous once said, in politics anyway. Yeah, look, I, I'm not sure it's about um, me objecting to the notion of, um, of, of them putting a sort of um, carbon neutrality on the table, but the, the, who's responsible for actually delivering it is, actually doesn't have a hell of a lot to do uh, with the consortiums. And I think that's probably the point I was trying to make is that, um, you know, we do have a responsibility to our people. Um, we've got a responsibility to our communities. Uh, we've got a responsibility, you know, to government and to the regulatory environment to do everything that we can to meet to meet targets and and we're absolutely going hell for leather on that and in fact I think last year we published a our sustainability report which will be updated and republished again um, you know in the coming year so I mean it it has you know we have done a pretty exhaustive response to the question about sustainability and probably through the lens of carbon neutrality which is I think what they're actually getting at and um, you know as far as um, our business is concerned we're, we're We've got, made a number of very large moves in that area, as most businesses have, and uh, I can go through some of those for you if you want. Um, but we've also sort of doing as much as we can within our business for our own people as well, you know. And I don't, I don't think the query was so much about the environmental sustainability through the lens of what we do for our people and communities, but there's a lot of stuff going on there as well, uh, as well as the march to kind of net zero. But, um, I mean the. The key thing for me is I, th- I, I, I just can't see it as being a consortium responsibility to, to hold us to account for that, you know, for that work. It, it seems um, off brief to me. Let's explore that a little bit though, Brian, because obviously all, when you talk about the consortiums, this is the big agency holding companies, uh, the media agency groups. Uh, they have been very active in market exploring, at least at this, as I understand it, sort of putting some, putting some targets that they may expect down the track on what media owners need to do 
with their energy use and how advertising contributes to you know all those things that go up into the into the sky. The the and so what what is your? I'm still trying to work out why you have some issues there though with the agency groups doing it. What what is the, the specifics? Well, I, I guess really it's um, as I, as I said initially, we have taken on the responsibility of dealing with um, with our role in that um, very seriously and and quite broadly within the business. And as I say, we don't mind telling anybody the story and we actually publish um, our position in what we're doing. For example, we have outsourced our um, broadcast services to BA. BA have a commitment to net zero by 2040. They've got a very aggressive rundown to reduce emissions by 65% between now and 2030. You know, we've been a party to all of that in our negotiations to outsource you know, the services to ensure that we were sort of heading in that direction. Um, and we've also got a commitment to, uh, for example, in, in Melbourne, we just uh, had the opportunity to move offices. So what we did there was reduced our footprint. We went for four-star green ratings. We've, you know, introduced more team flex to be able to have less footprint, less people on the floor at any given time, increase the availability of um uh, end of trip services so that we can encourage people to do public transport as opposed to driving. Right. So you got a lot of stuff going on. And I guess the question is, so what is, what is different uh, about what the agency groups are asking of you that you, there's a gap? Is there a gap somewhere or what has been asked of you that you oh, don't? Look, I mean, I suppose, I suppose the concern is that where we, you know, we are doing these things, we're willingly and, and, and openly and, and, and aggressively um, doing these things. And, um, We'd hate to think that the report card for those efforts would be signed by a third party, you know, that, you know, the other way around. We can't hold them account for their actions in that space and we right. don't expect to be held to account by, by anybody else um, other than what we determine with government is the, is the right path. And so right. um, I, I guess what I was questioning there was, um, you know, whose responsibility is it to hold us account if not our shareholders, if not our people, if not our government, if not our community? And as far as I think we're concerned, that's, that's, that's where the focus needs to be. Um, Got it. It feels out of scope to me. Right, right. And just out of interest, what are, you know, in, in the conversations you've had, we don't need to name names, but what are the sorts of things that the agency groups are asking of media owners, um, including yourselves? Oh, look, it's quite variable um, and it's come in sort of, um, you know, I, I do think uh, for the most part it's been quite light touch, uh, light tone and, and no one, no one's made any sort of overt suggestion that, you know, if we're not, you know, getting to a certain level of uh, carbon neutrality Compliance, by a certain period yeah. of time that there's going to be a threat of any sort of reduction in spend or anything like that. And I think, well, yes, I, I anyway, think for the right. most part <laughs> an assurance that we're doing the right thing, uh, which we are, but as I say, it's kind of... It's a one-way street there, mm. and um, you know, and I, I think we have to uh, we have to assume and we have to support the efforts of anybody uh, that might be constituting a client of ours, whether it's a consortium, agency, group, or whether it's an individual client. You know, to support them in their efforts to achieve the same kind of outcomes uh, that um, that we're achieving. It's um, you know, it's we're we're all in this together, and it's not the job of one part of the industry to hold the other part of the industry to account for these these things. And I. I I probably would prefer to see the MFA and Free TV and CRA and everybody else come together on this discussion and just agree that these are efforts that need to be made and and um, share information and um, and ideas about what we can do as an industry to sort of move forward in that space. The other thing I was sort of thinking, uh, you know, as well is, 
you know, there's a, a degree of community service um, and provision of services around local news, information, um, entertainment and connectivity um, that, you know, there's a trade-off there uh, in relation to, um, you know, ESG and, and, you know, we're definitely providing a service that is um, required, wanted, needed in the community, um, not I mean, obviously, from an entertainment and information perspective, but additionally, a, com- a commercial perspective. You know, we're, we're we're connecting brands and audiences and communities, and in many different and varying ways. And you know, and so um, for us, you know, we're we're very focused on um, you know reducing um, you know our footprint through more efficient broadcast services and. And as, as, as we say, we've done a lot of work with BA and, and, and heading towards, um, you know, net neutral by 2040, which I think is a, a pretty great target. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's, it's, I guess this is part of this whole broader scope three discussion, which is about the supply chain and how you get compliance through the supply chain. And I suspect maybe that's where the agency groups are coming from. But I think, um, you know, we should open this up to a, a much broader conversation. Um, I think there's probably a few uh, media owners feeling quite similar um, about your notion Let's jump out of that fry pan, uh, Brian, into another one, which is, um, you know, in around these misconceptions amongst media buyers, at least, about how how platforms like Spotify are credited with podcast audience numbers and shows that they can't actually sell ads in, they can't monetize. That's, um, that's in, in many instances, in your instance, you, you, it's you selling those ads. So what's going on there? What's Update us a little bit in, on the state of play. Yeah, look, so this this is actually great news. This isn't a bad thing. This is actually a good thing. You know, we have um, aggregated a ton of um, high-end local podcast material through Listener as a service, and we have worked now with a number of major international and local publishers to bring together uh, a fantastic repertoire of world-class and international podcasts. Five or 600, I think, is it right? Yeah, yeah, and now with... Um, De Martina on board most recently, uh, joining Schwartz, Stitcher, Wondery um, and others. All of those podcasts flow through Listener, obviously, and we've got, as, we, uh, as we've published recently, about 1.2, 1.3 million signed-in users to the Listener platform. But all of those podcasts are available on other podcast platforms. So, you know, you can, if you're on um, Spotify or Apple Podcasts, you get those podcasts there as well. And what the media buyers are now coming to terms with is that the only place you can buy the advertising that's being distributed across those multiple podcast providers for those podcasts is via SCA. Right. Via listener, which is terrific. So I think we had um, a period of time as, you know, as, as you know, we turn um, two years old on Friday, tomorrow, the 15th. <laughs> Tomorrow's the fifth. Tomorrow's the fifteenth, is it? <laughs> and we turned two years old, and um, a lot of stuff has happened in that two years. The platform uh, has gone from obviously zero to zero to hero in that time. It's now a very major scaled platform, and it's just I guess it, it would it would in the normal course of events take the media buyers um, and planners just a little bit of time to sort of figure out exactly how that platform is changing the landscape and, um, you know, it's changing it pretty dramatically in that sense. So we had a, a number of showcase presentations to key agency personnel over the last couple of weeks and, and it actually surprised me. It also delighted me that we were actually able to land the message that these top-rated podcasts are uh, being distributed on multiple platforms but, again, are, you're, you can only commercialise them through listener. 
Mm. And so there was some of the other platforms were obviously bundle up all their aggregate numbers and it's I guess the fuzzy bit is the is sort of the lack of clarity around how you can buy those audiences. I think that's the point you're making, right? So the, the whether it be Spotify or anyone else, bundling all their shows. Yeah, you could be in a position, if, if somebody was just aggregating all of their impressions and their downloads into one big number, there's certainly the chance that um, it's going to wrap up uh, an amount of um, uh, inventory that's certainly our inventory, um, unsaleable right. by them. So I, I guess that risk exists and we can't speak for whether or not they do an audit in that space and uh, present a number that is um, solely their um, saleable impressions. Um, and we have, and I, I think, Joanna, you could probably add a bit more light to this, but um, we have sort of sometimes got the impression that the audience claims, um, you know, on some platforms incorporate their ad-funded audiences and perhaps um, a decent chunk of their subscriber audiences as well um, because it's a pretty impressive grossed-up number. Mm. But a subscriber audience isn't one that you can buy, you know, ad insertion um, streaming advertising via, for example. Mm. John, have you got some thoughts on that? Are you, are you seeing that in market? Yeah, I think it's not necessarily as common as it once was. I think there's been a lot of market education over the last few years to help the buyers and planners and and strategists understand what is available and from who, which shop front you go to um, in order to purchase your products and services. But as Brian alluded to, a lot of the time when you want to talk about an audience, you're often trying to, you know, win a brief or educate your your customers at that time and present, you know, the best picture you possibly can. And if you leave out some aspects of that, which might be, you know, a total audience figure and not necessarily the total commercializable is that even a word? Monetizable audience figure. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> just making up words here as I go. Um, then you know, sometimes, it. sometimes in the sales world, um, you might leave you know some aspects to the imagination. But I think it it then puts the onus back on other media owners um, to set the record straight. There's no question about the notion that there's over the last few years, been a lot of confusion in the market specifically relating to digital audio. And that doesn't just stop at, you know, which sales house sells what, but it it goes into questions around planning, buying, measurement, all of which, which has come a really long way over the last couple of years. So while it's nowhere near as bad as it once was, it's certainly improved a lot. There's still some work to do. Got it. And we'll get to, we'll come to the, what's going on in digital audio in, uh, in, in very shortly, because there's some um, big growth numbers there to talk about. Brian, I just want to get back to, uh, before we get into digital audio, one other big theme that's out there, which we, we mentioned in the, in the top of the podcast uh, around um, a $300 million linear TV advertising pot uh, that could be exiting this year. Um, you've got some plans there to tap that. You think there's some opportunity and uh, do tell. We last year were obviously getting um, pretty good indication from the market that the level of frustration that was building around, um, you know, campaign delivery and reach levels through, you know, um, just day-to-day kind of camp, you know, TV campaigning in particular, um, you know, the, the lack of ability to be able to get a campaign away was a real point of frustration. 
so not enough inventory for everyone to get what they need for their reach targets and yeah. so forth. Well, particularly when audiences started to tail off uh, in that post-COVID environment where, you know, regular viewing patterns resumed. So concurrently with that, you know, radio audiences were going back up to record levels and then there was this other kind of underlying emerging pressure for brands which was managing inflation. So they had to manage inflation through the supply chain. Everything was going up. Deliveries were expensive. Couriers are expensive. Parts are expensive. Raw product is getting more expensive. And so you had this kind of um, intense supply chain pressure uh, leading to sort of, sort of um, you know, in many cases, unmanageable inflation. And then at the marketing end, you get this kind of rapid escalation in television CPMs and a, and a kind of almost to the crisis point. So we went very hard on the inside around that last year and started launching some campaigns and having discussions in market with very traditional television advertisers, you know, even, you know, across into the FMCG space in particular, about um, managing some of that upward inflationary pressure and that audience size delivery by actually tacking some radio into the campaign and actually putting that on top of their television buy. Nielsen put out a very good product that does multi-platform reach through CMV, which is able to show what the incremental reach was. And we basically took that product to market and demonstrated to brand owners and media buyers that we had a real role to play in completing the reach journey in any campaign and keeping cost under control. And I think those were two very important messages and and you're seeing at the moment how that's playing out with, um, you know, CRA releasing figures that at the end of the year there was, a, you know, modest mid-single-digit mid, mid, mid growth rates on radio, which was terrific. In the same breath, we're learning that TV is going to take a bit of a hit and we saw some very significant revenue declines across December, January and, you know, we're sort of feeling that TV might not be in great shape um, in this quarter and, and perhaps that that's going to move on if you believe Christian's comments, which I do, of course, because he knows what he's talking about. So we think there's an opportunity there for us to just continue to have this dialogue with brands about radio's role in playing uh, or radio's uh, playing a role in the reach of any given campaign and the alignment of television creative and audio creative is very strong. You can paint that picture and, and complete it in the audio space very nicely. There's a very, um, you know, very effective creative linkage between, um, you know, the commercial aspects, the creative aspects of the two platforms. And then you've got this, um, you know, cost-effective reach improvement. And I think I saw on one of your documents, in one of your documents, it was something like taking 20% of your budget, putting it into radio audio and getting a reach boost or amplifier, I think you call it, of, and that number I can't recall, but Jono or you might, but it's quite significant, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's basically, um, if you look at the reach curve as it starts to flatten out on television because you've got this kind of, you know, high frequency, lower audiences, less reach on offer for the same price kind of scenario, take that that tail of that TV campaign out, reinvested in radio, and the reach curve comes back up to where it ought to be. Now, there's not a there's not a, a, a pervasive perspective in the market that you know gross rating points um, include you know audio and visual you know elements, but that's not a stretch to put that there as a realistic strategy. 
And there's certainly tools in market, the same tools that agency folk use for channel planning are the same tools that we're using to um, isolate RNF on combined TV radio buys. Now, we've been doing RNF on combined TV radio buys for a long time because in many markets we have TV and radio assets. So it behoves us to to understand that space. Mm. But, yeah, um, it's it's a valid strategy. It's a really important one at a time of heightened inflation and particularly at a time we're getting hands on the quality TV inventories, you know, is harder. How's that landing in market, Brian? I think it's landing well because we've got FMCG advertisers, for example, onto radio that have never advertised on radio before. Right. Plus... Are they coming back after their first little dabble? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, I'm talking seven-figure commitments to longer-term contracts. Right. So this okay. is a very positive development. And then you're seeing that play out in most recent, you know, um, revenue data because, you know, radio is getting um, some growth where others are not getting growth. So this is new business and higher volume of new business coming through. And we expect to see that continue on. And we think that the scene is set for that $300 million to come back out into market. And we are certainly putting forward an argument to strategists, buyers, planners, clients uh, that a chunk of that should come our way um, through our traditional broadcast channels and also through our expanded digital audio audiences. And I think as this year progresses and GFK 360 comes into play and we start to see how we can, um, you know, uh, offer up a more granular kind of audience profile. This is the new radio uh, measurement system, right? This is for those Correct. that don't know what, what 360 is. Yeah, so we're already measured, but now we're going for a greater level of um, transparency and granularity, and um, and I think that stakes a claim on a on a further share of that three hundred million as well. Well, um, I look forward in maybe eight months' time to sort of loop back around on that and see what how, how the numbers are looking, Mr. Gallagher. But it does sound like um, the money's got to go somewhere, right? Because the audiences are going somewhere else as well, on Lydia. And that's exactly where the money's going to go, Paul. It's going to go where the where the audiences are. Right, and you've got some, and that. Well, let's get to that because, um, sorry, you were going to finish something quite profound. Then I think no, I got the wrong guy. <laughs> well, let's go to the profound one then, Jono. Um, when we talk about the uh, growth in digital audio, it's happening, right? It's it's underway. So, give us some update us with some numbers there, and and then some proof points because you've got. Uh, some really interesting case studies and how digital audio is sort of a, a workhorse for both brand and performance advertisers. It's quite interesting, some of the case studies. But give us a top line on what's happening in digital audio first. I think workhorse is um, probably the most profound element. I think you're the profound one here, Paul. Oh, um, right. I'll take that. <laughs> It does the work. And through the studies that we've done over the last um, you know, 12 months in particular, what we know already is that, you know, audio and particularly digital audio is an all-day companion medium. It's something that we have on when everything else is off and it's something that we keep with us, we carry with us. It's literally mobile and it's also literally stationary. And to that extent, we know that it drives action. Um, and a lot of the questions that have been asked over the last couple of years is around measurement and around planning, as I said uh, just before. And so we needed to go out of our way to develop additional proof points around that. Uh, you were talking about planning just before in the incremental reach. The studies that we've developed have shown that For example, if you're investing into a BVOD campaign, um, if you take 15% of that budget, you can 
increase your reach and the overall reach curve by an additional 40%. Now, if you think about that in the context of audio being a companion medium, that doesn't just then apply to the listener themselves, the audience, but it also applies to your media strategy. And it complements all your additional channels. And what we see time and time again is that when you layer audio with your other channels, it's not just a workhorse on its own, but it goes that extra mile for your BVOD campaign. We know that it can increase uh, your actionable output and your conversions when you're laying it with search. We know that uh, if you run a campaign on its own, utilizing the right type of creative, you can increase consideration, you can increase all of your branding metrics at the same time. And in the digital world, we know that you can now put pixels down and track website visits um, as a result of your digital audio campaign. A lot of things that are kind of habitual or second nature or assumed in other elements of digital media have always been around in digital audio, but not necessarily top of mind for everyone. So simple things like attribution have probably just kind of not necessarily been ignored, but they haven't gotten the spotlight. Um, and that's what we're trying to do now. Put the spotlight on the outcomes, the really positive outcomes, because we've got case studies highlighting brands that historically wouldn't even you know, typically use an audio medium to convey their message, like beauty brands. They have historically worked um, in more visual medium under the uh, strategic um, guide or insight that they need a visual medium to you know, demonstrate or highlight the product use. But what we found is that you can convey that through audio and use the creativity and the technology, the new technology available to enhance that with just audio on its own by utilizing the theater of the mind and utilizing that as a companion. So we've well, listen, seen one of the, one of the interesting that- things, John, I sorry, one of the interesting things I saw in some of your numbers, which to be frank, surprised me a little was that in terms of driving actions, driving a consumer response to or a, 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 you know, a customer response to something, I don't know if you have the figures to hand and I don't either. I've left them in my other office, but it was something like um, digital audio drives it can up to 50% action, whether it be uh, website visits, uh, e-com visits, app downloads. It was quite a significant number and I'm just, it's big. It's, it's, it's doing something. <laughs> That's right. We, we've collated a lot of brand lift studies um, and post-campaign reports over the last uh, 12 to 18 months to collate that into, you know, planning material for buyers. And you're right, it's about 48% of your audience on average will actually take a brand action post hearing your audio ad. And something that can't be measured in the digital world, which is something that... Can we- so that's quite massive. That is a very significant number. 48% um, can drive a brand action of some sort. I mean, I, you know, if you're thinking direct in digital click-through rates or direct response rates, we're looking single single fingers is a really, really strong number for some of these things. So 48% is quite significant. 
That's absolutely right. I mean, you know, a click through rate, you'd be happy if you're getting, you know, 0.1%, yeah. uh, let alone one or four or 48. Mm. But the things that can be measured as a result of these studies are the, the additional brand actions that you just mentioned, which can't be tracked with a pixel. They require research, they require surveying, they require a bit more depth study like, you know, discussion of the brand amongst family uh, post-campaign, in addition to did they actually go to the store, measuring foot traffic, um, measuring, you know, website traffic, it of course follows in with that. But um, I think there are so many additional brand actions that should be considered and acknowledged. It's almost um, harking back to the days of the last click attribution again. Right, um, right. Is that, you know, what really drove the sale or was there a whole funnel of marketing activity, including with audio, in this case, conversations that were had about a brand? And I think that's the benefit that buyers are definitely starting to adopt and brands we know for sure are seeing great results about the ability to have a conversation. It's almost utilizing a strategy, a water cooler strategy, if you will. You know, we know from our data and from industry data that people are listening to audio all throughout the day. We have the technology now to have it with us at all times. And as a result, we're listening and consuming more content than ever before. So if we as humans, as Australians and, and Australian consumers in particular, if we tend to spend our evenings you know, curled up on the couch watching something, how do you continue that conversation into the next day? And the first thing that we're doing in the morning is we're putting on a piece of audio, whether it be the news on live radio, whether it be a news podcast first thing in the morning, or asking your smart speaker to give you your daily briefing, that tends to happen. And that's your opportunity to continue the conversation and then have that conversation throughout the day. And you might speak to someone on a smart speaker first thing in the morning. You might speak to them on their car radio while they're in transit. You might speak to them through their desktop computer um, while they're at work. But it's the opportunity to have that conversation that then drives those brand actions. And that's where you get the 48%. And so how's this landing in market? And are we, particularly around the digital audio sector, it's clearly going to digital buyers, not sort of some of your traditional media buyers, uh, broadcast buyers on this. What happens when they hear these numbers and how's that going down in market? It's received really well. Media buyers and, and brands direct, there's one thing that is absolutely consistent amongst everybody is that they and we are all time poor. So when we present these types of research pieces or planning guides, they're received, you know, with open arms. Anything we can do to help make lives easier, work lives that is, is always received well. And when it's demonstrating, you know, positive results for clients, they do jump on board. And that's where we're seeing our growth rates come from. Right. That's why we're outpacing the market in terms of um, our digital audio campaign performance. Um, and revenue. It's well, I was going to ask, and I was just literally going to ask Brian, um, or both of you really, is so in terms of that, um, the size of the market, we've got a, you've got a growing digital audio audience. How is the revenue line flowing? How is, is the money following the numbers on that one, Brian? Yeah, I would say that it never follows fast enough, but I would say <laughs> that. 
would say that, yeah. But, um, <laughs> look, Grant gave the market um, an update. Your CEO. Yes, Grant yeah. Blackley gave an update to the market this morning and uh, in the investor presentation it shows that uh, we've had um, almost 38% growth in digital audio revenue in the half to December in a market that grew at 11 Right. And anybody getting 11% growth in the, in the half that we just had, it was actually doing okay. So we're pretty happy with that. And then I can say that coming into this quarter, um, our growth rates are tracking at about double where we were in the last half. Right. So you're tracking well above market. And just a bit of a thought on that because, you know, December, January in the, in the, the online or digital advertising market has been quite soft. You're seeing, I mean, you'll, you'll hear it, but you're not necessarily seeing that. Your growth rate's above what, what market's doing. Yeah, so the dig, digital, even digital in December declined quite markedly as a, you know, in the mm. entire market. There was, uh, you know, kind of a, I guess, just a, a halt to proceedings pre, pre-Christmas as, as caution gave way to um, some of the short buyers went missing and, and it had a pretty profound impact on the market. So for us to do well against that backdrop um, was pretty credible uh, for us. December, January, I think January will be less soft overall than what December was, but already February, March, we're sort of coming out of that. So I think we had a kind right. of a, an abundance of caution based on, you know, December's consumer retail spend data. Caution was applied and, and across the board things slowed down a little. But in, in audio, it's been quite, quite great, a great growth rate for us across this quarter. So, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask a um, curly one, which you'll probably say, yeah, not going to answer, but I'm going to try, which is, so if you're looking at the growth rate you are now in digital audio and both in the revenue and the audience side, when does that close materially on what's going on in the broadcast part of your business or, or even the industry? Don't even You don't even talk about your business if you don't want to do that. Yeah, okay, so... Yeah, that's an interesting one, and and this is um, where we're literally waiting now to get a cut of the GFK 360 data to be able to identify exactly how much of our broadcast listening capture is actually listening in the streaming sense. Um, right. And when I when I get my hands on that, and the other radio operators get their hands on that, you know, we're going to be able to sort of very clearly articulate, you know, what's broadcast listening and what it's worth and what streaming listening is and what it's worth. Big question is digital typically, historically, is deflationary. So your audience, what you can get on broadcast and what you can get into digital, sometimes it doesn't equate. Do you expect with some of the, with the listener uh, platform and so forth, uh, what happens What happens to that, that transition to digital? Yeah, I, it, this is a very different scenario because, well, first of all, the digital audio CPMs are holding up reasonably well. And, and the targeting layer in that space gives you a benefit that a survey book doesn't give you. So I think that is a positive there in that respect. The other thing that I think is a net positive uh, is that audiences for radio, as in total listening, are way up at record levels. Right. So what we've experienced in the past is, you know, a migration away from the primary platform into the new platform. And what we're experiencing now is an additive component of audience coming into play. And so in layman's terms to me, it would be what's been happening in linear television is not happening in, or in broadcast television is not happening in broadcast radio. Is that your point? Exactly right. So if you go back any amount of years you want, you track television audience, television audience reach your population, 
it's steadily coming down over time. Um, and if you look at what's been happening with a radio audio over the last few years, it's steadily going up over time. Mm, okay. We had the COVID blip where we couldn't deliver survey books uh, and we bounced back from COVID with more audience uh, than what we went into COVID with. Right, okay. As an industry. As an industry, it, yes, It's a yes, universal understood. truth for radio that it's got bigger audiences now than ever before. Yeah, really interesting. So as we wrap this up, I just might get um, some from both of you, some final takeouts uh, on both what's happening in digital audio and the market or whatever you choose really. But Jono, from you first, sort of the burning thought that might um, might be worth sharing to our industry would be what? Good question. The burning thought going through my mind and that has stuck out probably most in this conversation is for buyers, you know, understand where where the inventory that you're trying to purpose or the audience you want to reach, understand where it comes from. Question the media owners that might be giving you a really high audience figure as to whether or not they can actually sell the ads into that audience. And, you know, let's let's uh, bust some myths around what's available and where. And the second part of that is then let's bust some myths around the measurements and attribution. I think five years ago, it might have been okay to say that, you know, I don't know how to measure it, but I think we've all matured well beyond that now. And I think it's time for us to utilize the technology and tap into the audiences that are available and what we know for certain is that the audience is there. They're consuming more than ever before. And as Brian was just saying, it's not tailing off. There's just more content and more good content. And the final piece of that is that we know it drives results for brands. And if there's the one takeout that, well, that's three takeouts for you, I guess. Yeah, no, that's three thoughts. So that's three burning thoughts. Not bad um, in about less than three minutes. Um, Brian, your final pearls before we go. Well, look, I mean, one of them I just I sort of have to reiterate this issue around um, content. I mean, we are making more strong local content than ever before in the history of this company and it just delivers to us more audiences than we've ever had before. And I think that's a, a lovely idea that um, you can make quality local content for communities that you live and work in and it will be embraced uh, and, and engaged with uh, in a major way. And I think for any brand, realising that the audio space is probably one of the biggest opportunities for engaging fully with your audiences here um, is something to really to get excited about, um, the things we can do to make that connection work. And I think that's, that's, a, that's a big deal. Just a little, a little micro segue on that, Brian, is that I think you said um, when we were talking earlier that you, you have circa 600 podcasts. A lot of them are syndicated from offshore. A smaller number of the podcasts are actually local, but they are driving the bigger audience numbers. Did I hear that right? Yeah, absolutely. And if you look at the podcast ranker, quality local content is what people want. I mean, there are big international podcasts doing great business in Australia, don't get me wrong, mm. but Australian audiences want Australian voices mm. and that is a, it's a great formula for us because we're very good at providing them. So mm. that's a, and it's a great place to brand. So I think that's, that local content piece is a major thing um, for audio uh, in Australia. The second one is that this is, from a commercial perspective, this is the year of audio. You've got 
ever-increasing audiences. You've got a fantastic move by brands to embrace it and engage with us and, and the money is coming, which is amazing. And then in the, in the traditional broadcast space, we've got the new survey methodology coming into play, which is I think at a time where media buyers are saying, hey, look, TV, maybe 300 comes out and audio industry is coming in with enhanced audience measurement um, a greater number of, uh, you know, local content options available through a vast array of, um, you know, platforms, that it's, it's ours to lose. We need to get a chunk of that and we will. This is the year of audio. I don't think we've ever had a better opportunity. Well, I think that's probably a really good place to wind this one up. So Brian Gallagher and John O'Mendel, interesting conversation actually um, on really um, how Australians are consuming media and, you know, radio is rock and roll, as they say. So I will loop around and see how those fortunes are going later in the year, I'm sure. Thanks for joining both of you. Look forward to it. Thanks, mate. Appreciate the time. Thanks very much. This MI3 audio edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 audio edition to listen for free. Listener.